1: Welcome to the Key Ride Home for Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. A promising method for producing carbon-neutral gasoline from basically thin air. The strange story of the very first ransomware attack. And the surprisingly long history of bizarre ice cream flavors. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Scientists in Germany have figured out how to make carbon-neutral gasoline out of thin air. Dubbed e-fuel, the substance is currently being produced via a prototype machine at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in southern Germany. The project P2X is backed by 18 research institutions and 27 industrial firms, including Volkswagen and Shell, and is part of the larger Copernicus project, which is helping Germany reach its goal of a carbon neutral economy by 2050. If scaled up, e-fuel could be the key to reducing emissions from aircraft, machinery, and possibly even gas for cars. But like the many sustainable alternatives being explored right now, scale and cost will be the big hurdles. But first, the science. Roland Dittmeyer, who leads the project, compares it to photosynthesis, quoting the New York Magazine's Intelligencer. The process begins with a module built by Climeworks of Switzerland that extracts carbon dioxide from the ambient air. The device blows air over a filter that absorbs CO2 and then releases the gas in concentrated form when heated. An adjacent unit, built by a Dresden-based firm, produces hydrogen by splitting water molecules through high-temperature electrolysis. In the third module, built by a Swiss tech company, a reaction called Fischer-Tropsch synthesis fuses the carbon and hydrogen to produce hydrocarbons, the same carbon chains that make up gasoline, kerosene, coal, and natural gas. The science behind each step has been understood for decades. What's new is the fusion of the processes into a compact, efficient system. fischer tropsch has been known for a 100 years, says Michael Klump, a postdoc at Karlsruhe. It's putting the steps together that's hard. The heat produced by the synthesis reaction, for example, is repurposed to optimize the temperature for electrolysis. The hydrocarbon fuels in use today are extracted from the earth. When they're burned, they release carbon dioxide that drives climate change. What's coming out of the tap in Karlsruhe is different. So long as the energy used to make it comes from renewable sources, this synthetic hydrocarbon mix, or e-fuel, is carbon neutral when burned. And if the hydrocarbons are turned into materials like plastic, the end product is carbon negative. End quote. Right now, P2X uses 10 kilowatts of electrical power to produce 7 liters of fuel a day. But the plan is to keep making it more and more efficient, with plans underway for a lab that next year would use 200 kilowatts to produce 200 liters of fuel a day. And by 2025, they hope to use a single megawatt to make 1,600 liters of fuel a day. And Dittmeyer is even more ambitious. He wants to see a 100 megawatt plant that could produce 35 to 40,000 tons of fuel a year. Enough, New York Magazine points out, to fuel three 747 flights a day between JFK and LAX. But doing so won't be cheap. Nikita Pavlenko from the International Council on Clean Transportation estimates that because e-fuel's energy is from freshly generated electricity, it would actually be four to eight times more expensive than fossil fuel. But the hope is that the cost would go down as the technology improves. Klump projects $7 a gallon, about the current cost of gas in Germany. A New York magazine points out that maybe it doesn't need to become cheap enough for everyday car owners. Maybe its real potential is in commercial aviation. For a sector that's responsible for 2 to 3 percent of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide, and which has accordingly pledged to cut those emissions in half by 2050, aviation has struggled to find a viable alternative. Biofuels may never be able to keep up with the demand, and experiments powering planes with batteries have thus far not been up to snuff, in large part due to the outsized payload of batteries strong enough to power an aircraft. So maybe e-fuel is the answer. Quoting again, Jet fuel made from air and clean electricity would suffer neither of these problems. Production would be scalable without limit, and problems with energy density would vanish. What's more, aircraft manufacturers would avoid spending decades pursuing regulatory approval for new propulsion systems. Running on e-fuel, the engine technology of today could continue to power the airliners of tomorrow." End quote. Some remain skeptical, however, mostly, again, due to cost. E-fuel would require heavy subsidies, at least to get started, so officials may prefer to pick a cheaper alternative. And if a viable one exists, that's great, but at some point we really are going to have to make some drastic changes and investments to have any hope of meeting our climate goals. With everything going on with the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack here in the U.S., CNN decided to go back in time and take a look at the first ever ransomware attack. According to CNN, the first instance of ransomware happened in 1989 via floppy disks issued to 20,000 attendees of the World Health Organization's AIDS conference in Stockholm of that year. AKA a lot of the world's leading experts on a pandemic that was already out of control and being largely ignored. The result of the ransomware on the floppy disks was that many of those people lost years of their work. When you inserted the disk, it would hide all the directories and encrypt the file names, essentially rendering the system useless, and then display a message asking you to renew the license, an act which would require you to send $189 in an envelope to a P.O. box in Panama. CNN notes that they're not sure how many, if any, people sent the money in, but they did track down one guy who helped fix the crisis. Eddie Willems, then a systems analyst at an insurance company that had received the disc, was savvy enough to get around it and ended up being called upon by countless medical institutions and organizations to help save their computer from what came to be known as the AIDS Trojan horse. Willems himself, who still has the original floppy disk, went on to become a computer security expert and now works for Data, the creators of the world's first antivirus software in 1988. The incident made headlines around the world, in part because it was something that indeed affected major institutions all around the world, but also because it was the first time that most people had ever heard of or even imagined what CNN calls digital extortion. That said, those who already trafficked in computer viruses and security weren't impressed. Reporting on the case in a 1990 issue of Virus Bulletin, the publication called the ransomware sloppy. Sloppy. Contributor and editorial advisor to Virus Bulletin programmer Jim Bates led the creation of a removal program called AIDS Out, which helped recover many of the encrypted files thought to be lost. And despite the whole situation being novel to many people at the time, Virus Bulletin notes that savvy individuals and companies, quote, were quick to offer AIDS clearing and AIDS protection services at a price to affected users. Many of these offers were based on the flimsiest knowledge and sometimes without any analysis whatsoever, end quote. So good to know that that kind of profiteering has always been alive and well. But as for the person who created the ransomware in the first place... It took a while for them to find him, but it turned out to be an evolutionary biologist named Joseph Pop, who had obtained the WHO's mailing list and sent the discs out to everyone on it. His exact motives remain obscure. Willems points out that it would have taken an incredible amount of time, not to mention money, to afford all those floppy discs. Pop was doing research on AIDS at the time and even worked as a consultant for the WHO in Kenya. Some think that he had been turned down for a job with them. He claimed at one point that the ransom he was trying to collect would have been donated to AIDS research. Whatever the reason, when he was caught by New Scotland Yard and arrested in Amsterdam, he began behaving very oddly. And when he was tried in the United States, ended up being declared mentally unfit. He passed away in 2007 without the larger world ever really getting to the bottom of his motivation. And while the whole situation did help a few individuals like Eddie Willem cut their teeth in the cybersecurity world and go on to make great contributions to it, it was also only the beginning of much more complex and insidious attacks today. CNN notes that cryptocurrency is complicating the situation even further, and the U.S. Justice Department declared 2020 as the worst year to date for ransomware attacks. And with what we saw with the Colonial Pipeline, 2021 might be on track to beat the record. And while the Colonial Pipeline and the WHO AIDS conference were two huge attacks, a lot of ransomware is aimed at individuals for smaller amounts of money. So with that in mind, I'm putting a link in the show notes with a few tips on how to be proactive. The TLDR is don't click on weird things and make sure you're regularly backing up your files so that if you ever do encounter ransomware, you won't feel any kind of desperation to get your files back. No $189 written checks mailed to Panama necessary. All the trendiest ice cream shops these days seem to be just as identifiable by their Instagrammable interiors as they are by their exceptionally inventive flavors. Chalkboard menus and social media stories hype up their flavors of the day, which seem to have been concocted by a mad scientist in the back room pouring test tubes into a vat of ice cream. You could say Coldstone Creamery's wide array of toppings cheerfully chopped into a scoop of vanilla on a frozen slab opened the door for the bizarre flavors integrated into the ice cream itself that we see today. But according to food history writer Jerry Quinzio, flavors like saffron and rose petal weren't invented by hip Brooklynites of the past decade, but rather staples of ice cream dishes from the very beginning. Writing in an early volume of the journal Gastronomica, Quinzio shares that ice cream first really hit the scene in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, and at the time, recipe books were primarily concerned with instructing on how to keep the ice cream frozen. Flavors were secondary, and often written off as do whatever you want. And whatever you want, in practice, usually meant riffing on existing desserts like creams and custards, using all the same flavor profiles and many of the same ingredients. Things like chestnut, saffron, currants, tea, and lots of flowers. Quoting JSTOR Daily, "'Jasmine, violets, elderflower, and roses were all common. Orange, in all kinds of forms, also featured prominently. Cooks used orange flower water and candied orange flowers, as well as juice, pulp, and peel of the fruit.' Some recipes called specifically for peel from bergamot oranges or pulp from Seville. Others used orange flower water as the base for an ice cream that included pistachio, walnut, or nougat. It was the vanilla of its day, Quinzio writes, end quote. You might also mix in rye bread, macaroons, or other cookies as you would with a custard. And at least in a 1768 cookbook from an Emmy, the first one focused solely on ice cream, recipes could be savory too, incorporating parmesan, gruyere, coriander, and even truffles, like the fungi kind. Others suggested artichoke, cayenne, foie gras, and a whale secretion called ambergris. According to Quinzio, one Italian cook said there was no vegetable that couldn't be turned into an ice worthy of that name, which many apparently took as a challenge. Various vegetable ice creams, like cucumber, might be served with the meat or fish courses. And while one 19th century culinary entrepreneur sounds like she should be retroactively arrested for crimes against ice cream, with her recipes for ice cream made of apples, onions, coconut, curry powder, whipped aspic, and garnished with prawns, not to mention her ice cream duck mold that calls for a glass eye to give it a realistic appearance, others of these entree side dish ice creams actually don't sound too bad. Quoting Quinzio, Mrs. Sarah Rohrer served mint sherbet with lamb or mutton and apple ice with roasted duck, goose, or pork. She made a spicy, Bloody Mary-like tomato sorbet and recommended serving it in punch glasses at dinner as an accompaniment to roasted beef or venison, end quote. And Quinzio notes that some of those sorbets even included shock and awe, jam, and sugar. And to be fair, there were certainly ice creams being made that sound a bit more normal to our modern ears, ones flavored with coffee, pineapple, and again, lots of orange. But vanilla was not too common. Quinzio notes that vanilla was not an overly common export to Europe until the mid-19th century when a method of artificial pollination was devised. I'm quoting again, "...by the 19th century," Quinzio writes, "...wealthy British families were doing different weird things with ice creams and ices. At dinner parties, they served them as palate cleansers between courses. These were often molded to look like fish, pineapples, or especially often asparagus." Cooks might use vanilla ice cream for the stalks with pistachio or greenage plum ice cream for the tips, but some really went for realism, parboiling and pounding asparagus tips to make ice cream. End quote. Rich people were really into molded ice cream in the 19th century, it turns out, perhaps paving the way for the extravagant jello molds of the 20th. But what do you think? Will you start serving vegetable ice cream with your meat dish? If the hipster ice cream place downtown starts offering an artichoke flavor, will you try it? I mean, I'm not gonna lie, with the weather heating up already, I don't think I'd be entirely opposed to all of my meals being translated into ice cream form, if only to keep cool. And that is it for today. That's all I've got today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.
0: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love.